Good morning. All right, I think you can turn me down a little bit. Y'all doing good? Take your Bibles this morning and turn to James chapter 3. Uh, so we're just going to jump uh, right in this morning. We've been in a study uh, here, the book of James. And uh, if you if paid attention at all, you realize that James is not interested in people who talk a big game when it comes to their faith. All right. He says, if Jesus is your Lord, uh, you're not just going to talk the talk. You're going to walk the walk. And uh, James says uh, that you're going to walk the walk. And he's given us some specific areas where we're going to walk the walk in through different trials. We're going to walk through trials uh, differently than the rest of the world. Uh, We're going to treat people differently than the rest of the world. It's going to show up in our lives. Uh, We're going to talk different. We're going to act different than the rest of the world. Authentic faith shows up in fruit that is consistent with what the Bible says is authentic faith. And James knows if we're going to need, if we're going to do that, then we're going to need something uh, that beyond this world to help us. And that thing is called wisdom. We're going to need wisdom. We live in a world that desperately is, is in desperate need of wisdom. Our homes need wisdom. Our lives need wisdom. Our relationships need wisdom. But the question is, what is wisdom? How do you know that you have wisdom? We kind of grow up with a general understanding of there being a way that is wise and a way that is foolish. You know, I remember at a young age watching Saturday morning cartoons and Mr. T. Y'all remember Mr. T, right? Uh, somebody just said it right there. That's what I'm talking about, right? I remember him pointing his finger at the kid sitting at home with his chains and with his muscles saying, I pity the fool. And I was like, I like Mr. T. I don't want to be a fool, Right. And so even as, at a young age, I understand that there's a way that's foolish and a way that is wise. I remember going as a, uh, I was like eight years old, I think. I was pretty young and went to the theater and got to go see what I still believe is one of the greatest movies ever in the history of cinema. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah, there's a few people who know. Um, and, and so I remember seeing that movie. And if, you, if you're familiar with that movie, you know at the end of the movie how it ends. You know, Indiana Jones is trying to find the secret place where the Holy Grail is hidden and finally tracks that down. And, and there he is. And it's, it's being guarded. Not, you know, it's you kind of, we use that word loosely. The guy's like 900 years old and he can't lift a sword. Uh, the, the Grail guard. But he's been there uh, guarding the Grail. And then Indiana Jones, the enemies kind of show up. They all kind of show up at the same time. And they're all going after this Grail for different reasons. And so, you know, the antagonist, Walter Donovan's there, you know, and the evil uh, doctor, uh, I forget, forget her name, the, kind of the wicked lady. She's Schneider. Dr. Schneider, she's there. And so they're over here and they want the Grail and, and they're pointing their guns at Indiana Jones. So they get to pick it first and they step up and there's several Grails, there's several cups to pick from. And they go for the cup that looks, in their minds, what would be fit for a king. And so they grab that cup. Uh, the Donovan, he dips it in the water. He drinks it. And then all of a sudden, you know, to my horror as an eight-year-old, my eyes bugging out of my head, you know, he turns into this corpse and just shrivels up and dies. And the guard leans in and goes, he has chosen poorly. And I was like, yeah, I think he did, you know. <laughs> And then Indiana Jones, he steps up and he takes a different approach. He's, he looks for something that's not as obvious, a carpenter's cup, and he takes it, he dips it in the water, and he drinks it. And long story short, you know, it, it, it saves the day, bump, 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 and they ride off into the sunset. But the guard leans in and looks at him and says, you have chosen wisely. And I remember walking out as a, young, as a boy, understanding that there is a way, generally speaking, there's a way in the world that's foolish and a way that is wise. I would argue that billions of people alive right now on the earth have a general understanding that there is a way that is wise and a way that is foolish. But tragically, few in this life actually discover true wisdom and spend their lifetime walking in it. So we want to examine this morning what's true wisdom. So stand with your Bibles open, and I'll begin to read in verse 13 of James chapter 3. 
James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, we come to you this morning thankful for another opportunity to gather together this morning and to get in your word. Lord, I pray you'd make us humble, all of us, including the man speaking right now, as we get into this text, into this passage, that we would experience a humility that would make us learners, that would make us teachable. Uh, Lord, that we would learn to be peacemakers this morning. Lord, that we would learn to sow peace so that we can see a harvest of righteousness in our relationships and in our homes and continue to see a harvest of righteousness in this church. So, Lord, help us to grow this morning, help us to learn, but help us not to just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word when it's all said and done. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice that James starts here with a question. You see that? He says, who is wise and understanding among you? And he doesn't even give the class time to raise their hand to answer that question. He kind of answers it for you, right? He quickly says, by his conduct, good conduct, may he show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, James is saying what he said up to this point with the way we live our lives. He's saying, hey, do you claim to be wise? Would you be quick to raise your hand to be wise? Well, here, we're going to do this. We've done this throughout the whole book. Let's take a look at your life. And here we see that James, this is where there's a difference in the way that much of the world will think about wisdom in a way that we can think about wisdom that even creeps into the church. Notice that James is not talking about wisdom the way that we often talk about it. James is not equating wisdom with knowledge. He's not equating wisdom with intellect or cleverness or sharp-mindedness or even being theologically smart. James shows us that, that, that true wisdom is when the right data, right data is important, the right data about God and the truth of God's word, when that right data in your heart and in your mind finds its way to your hands, finds its way to your feet finds its way into your conversations and into your everyday life. What he's saying is that knowledge and intellect alone is not wisdom. In other words, you can get a bunch of degrees and lack wisdom. All right, most of us have people in our family or around us who are educated fools. All right, don't amen that or point to anybody. <laughs> Education is good. The accumulation of knowledge is important. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing to boast about in your ignorance, right? Don't be like the guy who prayed. Don't be like that guy who prayed, God, I pray, uh, I thank you for my ignorance and I pray that you'd make me more ignorant right? That's a, that's not a good prayer. It's a prayer that's answered before you pray it. School's a good thing. Education is helpful. Hey, Bible college is good. Seminary is good. Reading good, extra-biblical resources about Christ and about the gospel is good. But what James is saying, and he's making a crystal clear point here, knowledge alone does not make you a wise person. Knowledge alone does not make you a wise person. It's the right application of that knowledge that really matters. James has been called the blue-collar scholar. And what he's doing is he's taking wisdom out of the sphere of intelligence where we like to think about it, where we like to store it, and he's bringing it down to a street level. He's getting practical. One scholar said this, James here is presenting wisdom in working clothes. 
So in other words, the way that a person demonstrates that they possess true godly wisdom is through a particular kind of lifestyle. And does this lifestyle match the lifestyle you live today? It's the kind of lifestyle that's summarized in verse 13. It's a life characterized by meekness, by humility, a humility that shines through our attitude, a humility that shines through our conversations, a a humility that's evident in our everyday life. And he's going to flesh out what this looks like, what the fruits of this kind of wisdom, this true wisdom looks like in this passage. But notice before he does that, he's going to show you what true wisdom is not. What true wisdom is not so that we can get a clearer idea of what it is. So there's two parts to this message, and here's the first one. There's a false wisdom from below to avoid. There's a false wisdom from below to avoid. James gives us the marks of this false wisdom, and I just want to time out and remind us that when we get into the book of James, we need to always remember that he's kind of got primarily two audiences that he's writing to. He's writing to people who are part of this church, the Church of the Dispersion, who are claiming that they possessed authentic faith but weren't living lives that validated that claim. And so he's pointing out people who would check yes really quick to being a Christian, but there's no fruit in their life that would support that claim. And he's saying, hey, you've never become a Christian. We're not saved by our works, right? We're saved by faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. It's always got with it corresponding fruits. And so he's always talking to that person, but he's also talking to people in the pews, people in the chairs, people in the church who have come to Christ, but who allow the ways of the world and sin and wrong thinking to creep back into their lives. So keep that in mind as we walk through these marks of false wisdom, false wisdom that can creep back into our hearts, even as true disciples of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14. Here's the marks of it. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. In other words, don't boast that you have true wisdom if these things are part of your life. Two things he's saying that characterize this false wisdom from below is this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Those are presented in contrast to what he just said is, you know, demonstrative of true wisdom, and that's meekness and humility. The first one is this, bitter jealousy. This is jealousy. We have a general understanding of what jealousy is. And what he means here is this is a deeply desiring something that you want that somebody else has, but you can't have or you don't have. And this is a destructive fruit in your life. It robs you of joy. It makes you incapable of loving people and relating to people in a godly way around you. Instead of rejoicing with others when they succeed, instead of rejoicing with others when they experience a blessing, you get resentful. And this is the quote-unquote normal way that the world operates, but it's a characteristic of false wisdom that can easily creep back in to our hearts. For example... You may have a friend who's making a lot of money, right? They, they buy new things. They got them a new hot tub. They got them a new car. They're taking a trip to the Keys, taking their family on vacation, posting pictures of it on social media. And here you are over here working more hours than you've ever worked, killing yourself just to make ends meet. You can't catch a financial break to save your life. And there they are posting about their vacation, right? They got their album, Living Life Up in the Keys, Right? And you pull it up, and, and because you're going to appear supportive, you hit the heart button, like, and you maybe even write, it looks like a blast, happy for y'all, when really in your heart, what you're, what you're typing is, is, I hope your boat breaks down. <laughs> I hope it rains on you guys every day down there. 
Maybe you're single and you just found out that another friend who you've been single longer than just got engaged and they just asked you to be in the wedding. You're like, this is the fourth wedding I've been in in the last year, right? And they ask you, sure, yeah, I'm happy for you. Be happy to be in your wedding, in another wedding, and resentment can creep in. Some of you may have a child. You can't do anything with them. They've just flown off the rails with their behavior. And yet you have that neighbor who wants to share with you about their little angel from heaven who all in the same day joined the National Honor Society, won the science fair, made the team, is the volunteer of the year down to the animal shelter and just got voted most likely to succeed in the yearbook superlatives. You're like, wow, happy for you. And they're like, well, how's your son? How's little Johnny doing? He's good. He's good. Going to pick him up from after school detention. But man, I'm, I'm happy for your kid. Or maybe you get jealous about other people's looks. You wish you, wish you looked like somebody else, shaped like somebody else. You, looked at, you look at that person across the room and you're like, you know what, that makes me sick. That per- they eat nothing but Big Macs, stacks of Big Macs, and they're thin as a rail. And here I'm over here, they're eating Big Macs all day and McDonald's french fries. I'm over here drinking shakes made of barley leaves. And I can't, I can't seem to lose weight to save my life. And there are many things that can stir, there are many things that can stir up jealousy within us, even after we get saved. And James is showing us it never belongs in the heart of a disciple. And when it stays, this is what he's saying, you are not living as a wise person. You in that moment cannot call yourself a person walking in the wisdom of God. Another characteristic of false wisdom that's often a close companion to bitter jealousy is selfish ambition. This is a promoter of self. Again, this is the opposite of humility. This is a person who's in the demolition business of other people's lives with their words, with their attitude, with their actions. And while they, at the same time as they're doing that demolition, building themselves up, always competing with others with a spirit of jealousy. And James is saying to live this way, is to not live as a truly wise person. And so the answer here, because even up to this point, you probably are you know, not saying amen as much as ouch, like I did when I walked through this part of this passage. And the question is, as the disciples of Christ, how do, we, how do we crush this? How do we slay this in our life, these two fruits? How do we put them off? How do we cast them out? How do we not allow these to get into our hearts and to control us like they can often do? Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. How do we deal with them in our hearts? Well, we recognize that the heart is the problem. You have to get to the root of the problem. And the problem is found in verse 14. It tells us that jealousy and selfish ambition spring from where? From the heart. There is a reason, church, that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God draws our attention to the heart. The answer to putting away this kind of false wisdom in our life, jealousy, selfish ambition, the answer to that not ruling you, is not to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and to try not to be prideful, to try not to be jealous, to try not to be selfish. The answer is not found in that. The answer is not found in self-help resources. The problem is in our heart. We don't need self-help. We need God help. And you don't just need God to help you. You need him to resurrect you. Ultimately, what you need, and some of you are there this morning, you don't, you're not walking in wisdom because you're not, uh, you're not a child of God. You've never come to Christ. You've never thrown the full weight of your faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and believed that he rose from the dead and conquered the grave you can't conquer. To walk in wisdom, ultimately what you need is a new heart. You, you don't need... 
your, your existing heart to be freshened up and cleaned up. Listen, it is an old, dead heart. You can't renovate it. It's broken. The Bible goes as far as to say that it's dead. You need a new heart. And when you come to Jesus and you get saved, you get a new heart. Many of you have a new heart. Many of you are followers of Christ. And once you get a new heart, listen, the answer to slaying these false fruits of false wisdom is to fill that new heart continuously with, to fix that new heart on, to believe with that new heart more in gospel truths. For the rest of your life, that's the solution, to continue to walk in the lane of godly wisdom and to slay these false fruits of false wisdom. You know why? Because when you have a gospel-centered heart, there's going to be a gospel-loving, Jesus-loving atmosphere within your heart where bitterness and jealousy and fruits of false wisdom cannot survive. Here's the way that works. All right, so maybe, you're, maybe Jesus is not center in your life right now. That's clear when you are ruled by selfish ambition and by jealousy, and by pride, and by other sin. But when you have a heart that's centered on Jesus, when you have a heart that longs to worship Him instead of yourself, when you have a heart that longs for His glory and His fame and His renown more than your own, when you have a heart that's truly satisfied in Christ, what that does is when that is the condition of your heart, when that is the atmosphere within your heart, it sets you free to rejoice and to genuinely be happy when other people are blessed. I've got no reason to be jealous because all I need in this life I already have in Christ. He alone satisfies the longings of my soul. I don't have to be insecure about what I don't have in this world because I have Christ and He's all that I need. If my heart's desire is to be satisfied in Christ and to make Jesus famous, then selfish ambition and jealousy can't survive in that heart. And here's another detail that can kind of jolt us out of letting these these fruits of false wisdom creep back in, is reminding ourselves, and James does it here for us, is where it comes from. Verse 15 says this, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's earthly and it's unspiritual and it's demonic. Notice how his language gets increasingly increasingly more intense right there, right? It's earthly. You're living like, you're living your life more like the people in this world make decisions and live their lives. And react to difficult situations and relationship problems. Earthly. But he says it's unspiritual and it's demonic. In other words, there's a system from underneath. This is false wisdom from underneath. And what do we mean by that? There is a system that exists, a culture that exists in hell that continues to permeate this world that is led by a leader called Satan who is a bitter being. He's continuously... Forever jealous of God. He's self-focused. And so I want you to think about what James is saying right here. When we allow ourselves to operate in this kind of false wisdom, and we allow these fruits to creep back into our lives, and into our marriages, and into our relationships, and into our homes, and into our churches, you are literally allowing the atmosphere of hell into those relationships. You are literally allowing the atmosphere of hell to have a place in your home. And when we do that, where does this false wisdom lead? Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. 
What James is saying is where there is an unwillingness to slay jealousy, where there's an unwillingness to slay selfish ambition, when it exists in the hearts of people and in your family and in your marriage and in your relationship and in your church, the result will always be disorder within those relationships. But you know what? I want to be clear this morning. That's not God's desire for your home. That's not God's desire for your marriage. That's not God's desire for your life. That's not God's desire for this church. God's design and desire is for us to be free of those things. And really what I believe James is focused on ultimately right here, because in the very next chapter, he's going to get into some spats that are happening within the church. He's talking about relational disorder within a community of believers. You literally would not have a new, you wouldn't have half of the New Testament if you took out all the letters that the authors of the New Testament were writing to churches who couldn't get their stuff straight and couldn't be unified. All through the New Testament, the writers are constantly having to tell the church to be united. 2 Corinthians 12, 20 says this. Paul wrote this. It kind of sounds like something parents would text back to a house when they go out for the evening to their kids when they're not, you know, they're, you know, assuming that maybe they're not doing their chore list or doing things that they're supposed to do. 2 Corinthians 12, 20 says this, Paul said, for I fear, he's writing back to a church, that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as I wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling or jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Paul and James the pastors in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament books, they know the distraction and the disorder and the destruction that can happen in a church when a church allows the culture of hell in the doors and they put up with, don't confront even the smallest amounts of devilish fruits of false wisdom. And the church today still has a propensity to do that. Even the smallest amount can create most incredible great amounts of destruction. I was pointed to an article this week by Tom Rayner, who served as president and CEO of Lifeway for several years. And he put out a uh, Twitter, um, like a Twitter survey, and asked people to, to write in and to um, you know, share stories about churches that they were in that were quarreling or that were, they were fighting. And he compiled a, a top 25 list of those stories. And so I'll list a few for you right here. He said that one, and some of them are just bizarre, right? He said one church was fighting over whether or not to build a kid's playground or to use the land for the church cemetery, right? And I liked what he put in the parentheses. He said, I'm dying to know the result of that dispute. <laughs> Another one, a church dispute over whether or not to install restroom stall dividers in the women's restroom, all right? I say yes, stalls in all of the restrooms on campus, please. Three, a major church argument over the discovery of a church budget that was off 10 cents. Someone finally in the business meeting gave a dime to settle the issue. That's my kind of guy. Here, it's a dime. Let's go home. One church debated on changing the name of, changing the name of the potluck dinner to the pot blessing dinner because Christians don't believe in luck. Now listen to this. This is from his, his list. It says, two different churches reported fights over the type of coffee. In one of the churches, they moved from Folgers to a stronger Starbucks brand. In the other church, they simply moved from a stronger blend. And members left the church in the latter example. 
I wouldn't want to be that person who runs into Paul one day in heaven. Say, hey, hey, why did, why did you leave that church? Let me guess, was it, was it heresy? You have to stand up and defend truth? You have to get out of there because they were being heretical pastors denying the doctrine of the Trinity? What was it? Oh, what was it? There a scandal that just broke loose and just ruined the integrity of that ministry? What was it? Oh, no, no, it's none of that. It's because they dared uh, to not care a wor- uh, care uh, about uh, you know, consulting with me at all about moving from a medium blend coffee to a bolder blend of coffee. Oh. Hmm. There's a way Rayner ends the article. He says, yes, these issues are silly. Many of them are absurd. But they are distractions from what we should be doing in our churches. In that sense, they are really great distractions from the Great Commission. Church, no church is immune from shameful, silly issues like this that can distract you. We have to be on guard. We have to battle. We have to fight to keep the demonic fruits of false wisdom like jealousy and gossip and slander and selfishness, selfish ambition out of our hearts, out of our marriages, and out of our church, lest they lead to a disastrous result, a result of disorder, and ultimately a result of distracting us from what we're here to do. And what are we here to do? We're here to grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. And then we're called to go and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's the main thing that God has called us to do. And anything that distracts from that, that won't matter 150 years from now, is demonic fruits of false wisdom. That doesn't mean we have to agree. In the Lord, we can have the same mind and be able to disagree. But it means we've got to put to death this false wisdom. We've got to pursue something better. So there's a false wisdom from beneath that we've got to avoid. But there's a true wisdom from above to pursue. We want to put off false wisdom, but that's not where we want to end this message. This is not just about feeling bad about selfish ambition and jealousy in our hearts and saying, I'm never going to do that again. It's about putting that off, but it's also about pursuing and practicing something better. True wisdom from above. He says in verse 17, that's exactly where it's from. This is wisdom from above. This is true wisdom from God. It's a gift from God. It's something we receive at salvation that comes into our life as a gift. And then it's something that we grow in by God's grace and that we're filled up with by the power of his Holy Spirit as we pursue it. And notice that James here, as he's describing, as he's giving us the fruits of true wisdom, he's really giving us a picture of Christ himself. And is that not the work that God's wanting to do in our life as disciples? You say, I'm a disciple of Christ. Well, you know what God's purpose for your life is? It's found in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. We're very familiar with Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We're very familiar with Romans 8, 28, right? God works all things together for good. We hold on to that. We walk through trials, but we forget that the purpose for our life and what those trials are intended to be in our life for is found in verse 29, where it says you've been predestined for the purpose of being more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's why you're on this planet right now, for God to conform you more to the image of Jesus Christ for his glory and so that others will be pointed to the gospel that's changed your life. What does true wisdom look like? Well, you can look at Jesus, but he gives us some fruits here that, we, that are helpful to us. He says, one, it's pure. That's what, that word means blameless. It means godly. This is a person concerned with holiness. Listen, we don't earn purity. We don't earn a pure position 
before God, spiritually, Christ comes into our life and makes us clean, makes us pure. We're justified in Christ before a holy God. But when he comes into our life, then he begins to help us to pursue purity, to pursue holiness. So a fruit of this kind of wisdom is pure. Number two, it's peaceable. Oh, lean in and listen to this. It's peaceable. A wise person is a peaceable person. This is a person who hates dissension. This is a person who hates disorder. This is a person who hates quarreling. This is a person who loves peace. This is a person who promotes peace. You want to know if somebody's foolish? A foolish person is somebody who loves stirring stuff up. Who loves keeping stuff stirred up. Who loves finding the next thing that they can get people stirred up about. A person who's truly wise, what James is saying, is a person who loves peace. This is a person who overlooks minor offenses. Who doesn't hold grudges. Proverbs 19.11 says this, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. A peaceable person seeks to love. A peaceable person seeks to reconcile. A peaceable person uh, you know, looks to extend grace, to extend forgiveness, to dispense mercy because they're a recipient and they're aware of being a recipient of the mercy of God that continues to pour out on them because of what Jesus has done for them on the cross. You know, Paul had to write the church in Corinth to set them straight about this. The church in Corinth, it was full of people, full of Bible knowledge. I'm telling you, there were people in Corinth who could stand up. They could teach a Bible study. They could teach a Bible study where people would leave and go, man, that man can preach. That man can teach. They were full of knowledge. They were able to, they were able to beautifully unpack expositionally a, a passage of scripture and give you everything in a, in a theological, theologically correct, doctrinally sound way. And what James is showing us right here is that they lacked love, which means you can be able to unpack beautifully a passage of scripture all day till the cows come home. But if your life does not line up with what you teach, you are not walking in the wisdom of God. Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 13 too. He says that if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I have nothing. True wisdom is pure. True wisdom is peaceable. True wisdom is gentle, he says. That means it's not rigid. It's not inflexible about things that don't matter in the light of eternity and in light of the mission that Jesus has called us to. A gentle person is able to adapt. They don't always have to get their way. They're not combative. They understand, listen carefully, in the context of their relationships within their life, at their workplace, they understand in the context of their church, they understand how in the context of their marriage, how to disagree without being disrespectful. Gentle. Listen to what it says in Titus chapter 3 verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. He says a wise person is open to reason, willing to listen, willing to defer when appropriate, able to get along with others. It doesn't always have to be his way or her way or the highway. And what James is showing us is that this type of life, 
This type of lifestyle glorifies God. You know what it does? It contributes to the beautiful unity of the bride. He says that this person is full of mercy and good fruits. This is the kind of person that's willing to serve people, to help their neighbor, willing to love God, willing to love people. And that takes a lot of humility. That's what he's saying. People who are truly wise are people who are seeking to live in the footsteps of Christ, who demonstrated otherworldly humility. And that's what we're called to possess. Meekness is not weakness. Listen, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less so that you can be freed up to think more about loving God and other people. It's impartial. It's sincere. What is he saying there with those two fruits? It's it's not the nearsighted usher that we learned about in chapter 2. That James says is forbidden in the church. It treats people equally. It's sincere. It's without hypocrisy. It's without a double-mindedness. In church, this is what James is saying. He's saying this is Christian wisdom. Please listen carefully to this next part. I believe what I'm about to say could help unlock a lot of issues in marital conflict in this room, in relationship issues that are going on in homes, that are going on in workplaces, in churches. What James is saying, that he's saying this is Christian wisdom, and when these fruits characterize a life, characterize a marriage, characterize a congregation, where there is this kind of true wisdom of God, where it abounds, this is the result. Peace. The result is peace. Peace with God. Peace with ourselves. Peace with people around us. Look what he says in verse 18. Listen how he ends this section. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James is pronouncing a blessing over peacemakers. He's saying righteousness flourishes in the context of peace. So if that's true, and if that's what it means to walk in wisdom, then that means we walk out of here seeking to be peacemakers. Doing everything we can to cultivate peace in our marriage. Doing everything we can to cultivate peace in our relationships. Doing everything we can to cultivate peace in relationships with our co-workers. By walking in true wisdom and by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit producing these fruits. Will you allow God's word to work in your life today? Because here's what happens. We hear a passage like this. We hear a text like this. And you're thinking about four or five people right now who you wish were here to hear this message right now. You're already thinking about who to send this to. Church, and this is for the man talking to you right now, we have to get out of the habit of reading God's word with other people's problems on our mind. We have to get out of the habit of reading the Bible with other people's problems on our minds. This word is not to be a club to beat people over the head with. It's not a shield that we try to use to to deter uh, criticism. It's a mirror that we hold up that helps us examine our life. That's what he talked about at the beginning of this book in chapter 1. So if that's true, hold up the mirror to your life this morning. And let me ask you some questions. Peaceable. Peaceable. Can that be said of you this morning? The people who know you best, would they say... Peaceable is a fruit that marks your life. Gentle and open to reason. Can this be said about me this morning? 
full of mercy and good fruits. Can this be said about me this morning? Impartial and sincere. Can this be said about me this morning? If not, I am not walking in true wisdom. If not, I cannot call myself in this moment a truly wise person. But here's the good news. I've said this several times and I'll keep saying that this is a wonderful thing about Christianity. It is a series of new beginnings. We're all works in progress. We're all very aware that we're sheep that at times are prone to wander. That at times we allow these, these, these fruits, these demonic fruits of false wisdom to creep back into our life and our marriages and our homes and into our life. But here's the good news. God's grace is giving us this moment. You know what to do? You know what you can do? It's not too late this morning. This morning, no matter what you're going through, no matter what the Holy Spirit is showing you about your life with these different areas, here's what you can do this morning. You can get off at the next exit. You can go up underneath the overpass. And you can get up on the on-ramp and begin to walk down a path of godly wisdom this morning. Wisdom is available to you, disciple of Christ. The question is, is will you pursue it? The question is, will you practice it? The question is, will you walk in it? If you know Jesus, and that's the key. If you don't know Jesus, that's where your journey of walking in godly wisdom begins. A relationship with the embodiment of wisdom, who is Christ. And some of you need to start there, but if you know Christ, you think about it, you have a heart that can know wisdom. You have access to a book full of wisdom. You have a model, literally the embodiment of wisdom in your Lord and Savior that is given to you through the pages of Scripture. You have a direct line to heaven. James 1.5, what does he say? If you lack wisdom, ask God. He's generous. He'll give you wisdom. The question is, will you pursue it and will you walk in it? Some of you came into this room today and your life is filled with conflict. Your homes are filled with conflict this morning. Some of you, your lives need peace. Some of you, you feel like your marriage, it's hanging by a thread. And you're here this morning hiding in plain sight and it looks like everything's great. But you know in your heart it's not. Maybe it's a problem at work. Some relational conflict that I haven't hit on. You know what it is. Let me ask you a question. As a believer, because this is where James takes us, because what we want to do is them, fix them. I hope they're listening to this. James doesn't let us do that. You know what? In, the, in the, this teaching, talking about peacemaking, this is what he's saying. As a believer, with whatever conflict you're in the middle of, have you as a disciple of Christ contributed to the harmony and the peace in that relationship? Have you sought to contribute to the harmony and peace in your home? Have you sought to contribute to the harmony and peace of whatever situation that is where you're lacking wisdom? Are you seeking to be a wise and a peaceable person? Let me just make it real simple. And this is as I stood back from the text. This is what stood out to me, especially with the way that James ends this passage. In a home where there is peace, in a marriage where there is peace, in relationships where there is peace, in a church where there is peace, you will always find people walking in true wisdom, producing these fruits that James just listed off. And any time there's dissent, any time there's disorder, any time there's conflict, it's because those demonic fruits of false wisdom 
have been allowed to blossom and bloom? Where in our life do we need to put off self-centered living and pursue wisdom in humility and meekness? Let's pray. Fight the temptation this morning to point your finger and understand that James will not allow us to do that. We can only control what we can control. My primary focus is my discipleship, my life, my walk with the Lord. And let me ask you again, have you contributed to the harmony and peace in whatever that area of your life where there's unrest in, have you contributed to it by producing these fruits that are consistent with what it means to walk in wisdom? Where's that area of your life where the Holy Spirit points out whatever that is? Here's what I'm going to challenge you to do this morning. Let it be identified and ask God for help. James 1.5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without a reproach. And it will be given. Pray for wisdom within your marriage. Maybe there's another situation in your life where you need wisdom. Pray for our church to continue to stay undistracted. May we be people who, per, who are pursuing wisdom. So in these next moments, we're going to have a response time and you can stand and sing and respond that way. I'd really encourage you because I, I sense that, that God's spirit's moving, you know, in, in a particular way today to come down and to pray, maybe with your spouse, maybe with your family, maybe to sit at your chair. Let's take ownership of our lives and let's pray that God would make us into the peaceable people who are pursuing and walking in his wisdom. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ. You need salvation. You need to be saved. What does that entail? It entails admitting your sin and admitting you don't have what it takes. But trusting what Jesus did on the cross was enough to save you and forgive you and throw in the full weight of your faith on him. Believing he lived the life you can't live, died the death you deserve to die, and conquered the grave that you can't conquer. Trust in him as your Lord and Savior. I'll be down front. I'll be ready to receive you. If that's you this morning, all you got to tell me is I'm coming to be saved. And we'll pray with you and help you. Maybe you need to be baptized. This is an opportunity for you to take that step. I'll meet you down here. Just let me know. Uh, I had a gentleman in the first service who's taking that step of obedience this morning. You need to make your faith public. You need to profess it publicly through the ordinance of believer's baptism. Maybe you want to join our church. Again, how do you need to respond? I'll let the Holy Spirit deal with you. Hey, let's be, let's be a people who are pursuing wisdom.